Now, what was the first miracle that Jesus ever performed? Whatever it was, surely it must be important. It must carry extra weight. It must be significant because it's first. So out of the many recorded in the Gospels, and there are many, which was the first? Have you ever thought that Jesus might have done miracles before that? As a young lad, maybe he did some miracles. What about this account? It's found outside the Bible in the Gospel of Thomas, and it tells a story when Jesus was just five years old. Then Jesus took from the bank of the stream some soft clay and formed out of it twelve sparrows. And there were other boys playing with him. But a certain Jew, seeing the things that he was doing, namely forming clay into the figures of sparrows on the Sabbath, went presently away and told his father Joseph. He said, Behold, your boy is playing by the riverside and has taken clay and formed it into twelve sparrows, and he profanes the Sabbath. Then Joseph came to the place where Jesus was, and when he saw him, called to him and said, Why do you do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? Then Jesus clapped his hands together, called to the sparrows and said to them, Go away, and while you live, remember me. So the sparrows fled away, making a noise. The five-year-old Jesus, true or false? Was that the first miracle that Jesus ever did? No, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't at all. There were many stories that circulated after the time of Jesus when the New Testament was being written. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the first Christians did a great job weeding out false gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, and also not paying attention to the various stories that sprung up, like turning clay sparrows into live sparrows. As an aside, the Quran, the uh, Islamic scriptures, the Bible that the Muslims read, it refers to this miracle of the clay sparrows twice. So your average Muslim who's well-schooled in the Quran will think that Jesus is a five-year-old turned clay sparrows into live sparrows. So let's put the speculation aside. These fables that grew up around the time of uh, the Bible being written. And let's deal with the biblical accounts, the ones that we know. Jesus' first miracle, and it's very strong evidence from the Bible, which was the first. Though it is quite a puzzling miracle to work through, quite a head-scratcher. So before we dive into this miracle, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, open the scriptures to our hearts Soften them when they are hard and unstop our deaf ears. In Jesus' name, amen. So the water into wine is the first miracle of Jesus. And we know that because when the account of the miracle of water into wine finishes, the Bible clearly says it's his first. And we'll come to that at the end of the story. So let's begin at John chapter 2 and see what God wants us to hear this morning from this story. John chapter 2. Verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So the setting is a wedding celebration with Jesus, his mother, and his disciples present. Now, the third day reference is significant. 
It's part of a seven-day sequence that started back in chapter 1. And in the middle of that seven-day sequence that John wants us to pay attention to, John the Baptist points to Jesus in the crowd and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so John, the author, wants us to make a connection with this story, with this miracle, with the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, what happens? Verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Now, wedding celebrations in Bible days could last for as long as a week. The financial responsibility of providing for the celebrations lay with the groom. So to run out of wine was a dreadful embarrassment to the groom and his family. In fact, there is some evidence from outside the Bible that the bride's family could sue the groom, take him to court if the celebrations did not meet expectations. And so in a shame-based culture, running out of wine was sort of a double, triple embarrassment for the groom. Now, when this embarrassment comes to Mary's attention, uh, she approaches her son. Now, we're not sure what Mary was expecting when she came to Jesus. It's unlikely that she was expecting a miracle because, well, this is his first, and he hadn't done anything before. But it's unlikely that Mary wasn't expecting nothing because she then tells the servants to do what Jesus tells them. So we're not sure about Mary's expectation, but the response that she receives is most surprising. We see this in verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now both in content and tone, we're a little bit taken back. To his own mother, Jesus appears formal, dismissive, and maybe, well, even rude. Woman, why do you involve me? So what's behind these words? Now there's a pattern in John's Gospel that is helpful here, or helpful for us to understand here. So in the Gospel, when we see people approaching Jesus, they have their own agendas. They want Jesus to fix something. They want Jesus to tell them something. They have temporal agendas and not God's agendas. And so Jesus is always moving the conversation from the here and the now, whether it's water from a well or whether it's running out of wine, whether there are 5,000 people that need feeding. He's moving those conversations from the practical to the spiritual, from let's solve the problem to what God is doing here. And this is a, a wonderful example of what's happening. Mary comes to Jesus with a practical problem, and Jesus wants Mary to see the big picture, the work of the Father. Also, because Mary is the mother of Jesus, she probably feels that Jesus is going to grant this request based on being family. However, Mary has a lesson to learn here, and that lesson is that Jesus will grant her no favor just because she is his mother, but he will grant her favor according to her faith just like the other disciples. Mary cannot expect privileges based on being Jesus' mother, and this is a lesson that Mary needs to learn. And we catch a glimpse of Mary being exposed to this truth when Jesus was just 12 years old. 
And you may remember the story. Mary and Joseph and Jesus travel to Jerusalem for a religious festival. And during that time, Jesus goes missing for three days. And eventually, Joseph and Mary find Jesus in the temple. And Mary attempts to scold Jesus. <laughs> we were so worried about you. Why did you put us through this? But before she can really get up steam, as a Jewish mother can, Jesus replies this in Luke 2, verse 49. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Don't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Even as a 12-year-old boy, it was more important for Jesus to be pleasing his heavenly father and to be about his father's business than to please anyone else, including his mother. Here at the wedding feast, Mary continues to learn this lesson. In effect, Jesus is saying, Mother, why do you involve me about the wine? I'm about my father's business. My hour has not come. This brings us to another question. Not only are we surprised at Jesus' response to his mother, but also what's this reference to my hour? What does Jesus mean by my hour has not come? Now looking ahead through John's Gospel, we see Jesus referring to my hour seven times. We're not really surprised. There's lots of sevens in John's Gospel, isn't there? There are seven signs, there are seven I am statements, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world. There's lots of sevens. And there are seven times that Jesus refers to my hour. And this remounts to a slow reveal. It's not until you read all seven of Jesus' expressions of my hour that we understand what it means. And as we come to the last two, you'll see that my hour talks about Jesus' crucifixion, and his glorification. So we'll have a look at John chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, and this is the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was crucified. We read this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So in John chapter 2, at the wedding feast, the hour had not come. However, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus says, my hour has come. And the last time it was used in John 17:1, we read this. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son and your, that your son may glorify you. So there's a very clear connection between my hour, meaning Jesus's self-knowledge that he'll be crucified and then glorified. So way back in John chapter 2, Jesus hints to us what is happening. He knows in his mind that if he is to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the only way he can do that is through the cross. Now He knows that already. He hints to us now by saying, my hour has not come. So, how does Jesus respond to this rather gruff comment? Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not come. Well, she appears to understand what he's doing. Otherwise, like all Jewish mothers, she would have given him an earful if she thought he was being rude. But she doesn't. Instead, she replies in faith. Mary seems to realize that she cannot control her son, but she can trust her son. And so we read this in John chapter 2, verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Now, the servants do follow Jesus' instructions. And as they do, something changes for Mary. Mary can no longer view Jesus as she does her other sons. Jesus is still her firstborn, but Jesus is also her Lord. And she's got to make that transition from being a mum who loves her son to a disciple who loves the master. And she does a wonderful job. And we notice that when Mary appears later in the gospel, Jesus continues to distance himself from her. Do you remember that time that Mary and the brothers come to the door and they can't get in because Jesus is busy and someone says to Jesus, oh, your mum's here. Does he go out and give her a hug? (laughs) He says, no, I'm about my father's business. You know, I've got things to do. And so through the gospel, when we see Mary, we see Jesus keeping his distance from her. And this is not a matter of him being callous. Because on the cross, while he's suffering and Mary's there, remember, he says to John, the author, you know, this is your son. Look after my mum sort of thing. Look after my mum for me. You know the incident I'm talking about? Yeah. So Jesus is not callous to Mary. But he's trying to teach her the lesson that now she must treat him as a disciple treats a master. Mary does a wonderful job realising that she can no longer count on special privileges of being a mother. Anyway, what do the servants do? Well, the servants are very good and they follow Jesus' instructions. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonially washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. Now ceremonial washing was important custom for the Jewish households. We see this referred to in the New Testament, that in a Jewish household when people came to the door, or when people came in, they would ceremonially wash their hands. Also, cooking utensils, knives and forks would be ceremonially washed. And so it was not unusual for households to have stone jars with water that was set aside for this ceremony of cleansing. So the servants follow the instructions and fill six stone jars full to the brim. Then they report back to Jesus. Jesus says, take a sample to the master of ceremonies, the master of the banquet. So the servants do. And so we pick this up in verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till last. Jesus turned the water into wine, and the wedding celebrations were rescued. The groom not only saved face and escaped a possible lawsuit, but the groom was honoured in both the quality of the wine and the quantity of the wine. And verse 11 rounds off this, this miracle, this sign, by saying, what Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. Now, even though the story has a most satisfying ending from a terms of a plot resolution, 
the meaning of the sign is not clear, certainly to me. When I'm reading through the Gospel of John, all the other miracles seem to make sense. Whereas this one, I always have to stop and think, now what's happening? Because the miracle seems, well, it almost seems accidental, doesn't it? I mean, we go back to healing the sick, calming the storm, multiplying loaves and fishes, even rising from the dead. And compared to those miracles, this miracle almost seems anticlimactic. It seems quite tame. However, the clue is in the use of the word sign and not miracle by the Bible. You see, it's not whether Jesus' miracles are grand, spectacular or in your face, or whether Jesus' miracle is subtle, quiet, to the side. What matters is what the sign points to. So what does this turning the water into wine mean? Well, the volume of the wine and the quality of the wine are key here. For one of the Old Testament signs that the Messiah would come and establish the kingdom of God was all to do with with wine. Listen to the words by the prophet Amos, written some 700 words before Jesus. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Notice those key phrases and sentences. New wine will drip from the mountains. That's how you know the kingdom of God has come. The wine will flow from the hills. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. These are all signs of the kingdom of God. So with this water being turned into wine, it's superior quality. An abundant quantity, we're talking 500 to 750 litres here, abundant in quantity, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. It's about to start. And this kingdom is far superior than anything that has gone before. In the same way that the master of the banquet declared, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. (laughs) Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, and that's the sign of the water turning into wine. It's interesting to take a moment to compare this sign with the other three Gospels. Uh, Listen to what Jesus' first words are in the Gospel of Mark. And because they're first, they're significant. So in Mark's Gospel, the first words of Jesus are, The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. So those are the very first words. Get ready, the kingdom of God is near. And and all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have Jesus saying that. And then, of course, if we go to the gospel of John, we don't have it on Jesus' lips, but the very first sign is the kingdom of God is near. So this is the first part of the sign of the water turning into wine but there's another part of the sign as well and again if we go back to the ancient prophets if we go back to Isaiah and have a look at uh, chapter 25 verse 6 on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine the best of meats and the finest of wines 
You see, the turning of the water into wine also points to the banquet feast of the Messiah. The banquet feast which will have the best and the finest of wines. Now, those people who know their wines know that a good wine that is aged is even better. And so this is the way that Isaiah is saying the best possible wines, the banquet of aged wines, the finest of wines, will be the sign of the feast of the Messiah, the banquet feast. And so again, we have this wonderful sign here, because Jesus is at a banquet feast, and the wine is the best. And later on in the Gospels, we see that Jesus refers to himself as the groom. And in the New Testament, we, the church, are his bride. And so this first miracle is also saying the banquet feast of the Messiah is at hand. And these are the two aspects that the wine points to. One, that the kingdom of God is near. And secondly, the banquet feast of the Messiah, the Lamb of God, is about to start. And so, though puzzling at first, the water into wine is a worthy first miracle of Jesus. It, does, it wasn't accidental. <laughs> it wasn't just that Mary came up to Jesus and said, let's sort this out. And Jesus thought, oh, yeah, okay, I can fix it. Not at all. This is all about the kingdom of God is near, the banquet feast is at hand. So before we look at some away practical take-home for today, let's just sort of summarise what we've been looking at today. Well, there's kind of been three puzzles to this miracle. And the first is, what's the meaning of Jesus' gruff response to his mother? And we've seen that Jesus wasn't callous or rude to his mother. He was teaching Mary that she could have no favours with him just because she was his mother. That she needed to approach Jesus like every other disciple, like you and I, in faith, by faith, trusting and not controlling Christ. To Mary's credit, she humbly, graciously and faithfully takes this on board. What an amazing woman Mary was. The second puzzle we looked at was the meaning of the word, the hour, hour. And we've seen that's the first of seven uses in the Gospel of John, and it refers to his crucifixion that then leads on to his glorification. And Jesus knew right at the beginning that for him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he must be crucified before he was glorified. And then back in John 2, his hour had not come. But when we get to John 18 and 19 and we see the crucifixion, then his hour had come. And then, of course, his glorification and resurrection. And thirdly, we've been looking at the meaning of the wine. and We've seen this as a twofold sign that announces the kingdom of God is near and the banquet feast of the Lamb is at hand. And so what can we take home? What can we ponder during the week, even get excited about maybe? Well, it's all about the uniqueness of this sign. Do you know what sets this miracle apart from all the others? With all the other signs, Jesus starts with something. The cripple had legs, and Jesus made them strong. The blind man had eyes, and Jesus made them see. The lad had five loaves and two fishes, and Jesus made them multiply. Lazarus was dead in the tomb, <laughs> But he had a body, and Jesus made it come alive. 
But when it comes to those stone jars, all Jesus had was water. Something very, very important was missing. What was that? Well, the grapes, wasn't it? And so I'm coming from a biochemist background, and I know that if you get H2O, you cannot make wine. You cannot make C2H5OH, for those chemists here, which is alcohol, and all the other flavours that go with wine. It's a different miracle because Jesus made something out of nothing. And this has tremendous implications as we come to communion and also as we come to God in prayer. Because this points to Jesus' ministry with us. Not only does Jesus take what's broken in our lives and fixes it, but Jesus can create in us something new out of nothing. Good things we have never imagined Jesus can uh, uh, create in our lives. Jesus is not limited to fixing damaged goods. And you and I are damaged goods. And Jesus does a wonderful job of fixing us. If we humble ourselves and look to Christ in faith, then he will fix us and repair us and make us whole. Praise God. But there's something else. Jesus also loves to create within us good things that were never there before. Not just fixing the things that are broken, but creating in us a new life and new qualities New giftings that we had never seen before. And this is what we bring to the communion table, the banquet of the Lamb, an anticipation of God healing and making whole, but also doing a new thing. We come to drink the wine. We're all going to taste that in a few moments. That superior wine, that abundant wine, the very blood of Christ. And because of that blood of Christ, our lives are fixed and made whole. But we also come to the table so Jesus can do a new thing in us. Create something wonderful out of nothing. Isn't that good? Jesus is very good at doing that. Creating something wonderful out of nothing. And it's all for his glory. So let's come to the table with this expectation that he will fix the broken and make something new out of nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that glimpse that we have of that dynamic between Mother and Jesus, between Mary and Jesus. And we thank you that she was such a humble disciple as well as a mother. Help us to learn that we too have no favours with you, but we come only with the faith that you give us. As we come to communion, Lord, we pray that Jesus will be more real to us as we take the bread and that wine, that best wine, that finest wine. In Jesus' name, amen.